that silence obviously means something's about to happen. Uh, good evening. Um, my name is Mark Thompson. I'm the academic tutor here at Queen's Hampton College. And uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. I'll talk to you, I think, are familiar and recognizable faces. Uh, this is the uh, second lecture uh, in the Richard Norman Lecture Series. Um, and we're very happy to have uh, Professor Barbara Ternaska here from the uh, University of uh, Gothenburg, the business school there. Uh, and I'll come on to say more about Barbara and his work to introduce uh, this particular lecture this evening. But first of all, I wanted to uh, uh, tell you more about Richard Norman and the Richard Norman lecture, for those of you who are not familiar with his work. Uh, Richard um, was a Finn, actually. Uh, he moved to Sweden. Uh, a Swedish Finn. It's Finnish Swedes and Swedish Finns, and you always have to get it right. Exactly. Um, and uh, he... He was a bit of a maverick in many ways. Uh, he, he had rigorous uh, interest in practice, but also uh, a conviction that theory was also important, uh, and managed to straddle both of those worlds quite effectively in his career. He uh, produced a number of uh, quite significant works uh, over, over his life. Uh, first one was around service management and a later book around uh, service innovation and co-production of value, uh, where he worked closely with uh, one of my colleagues here at the college, uh, Rafael Ramirez. Um, he's um, unfortunately died quite young in life. Uh, he was 60 in 2003. And in fact, I, I actually went to see one of his last uh, lectures at uh, a conference in, in Lyon, I think it was in 2002. And he, he held the audience. He was, uh, he was quite a powerful, powerful speaker. Um, I said that he, he managed to combine both theory and practice, and he, and he took this quite seriously by setting up a, a consulting firm, uh, the Service Management Group, which was really taking to uh, organizations and managers many of his thinking, uh, his thoughts around uh, service management. That, uh, that consulting firm uh, devel uh, developed into a another firm which took his name, uh, Norman Partners, which still exists. And it's uh, Norman Partners which is funding uh, this series of talks. So we're very uh, happy uh, to be jointly running these series of talks between Green Templeton College and uh, Norman Partners to honor the memory and the work of, of Richard Norman. Um, his work is significant. Uh, I just quote from Henry Mintzberg, and you're talking about management, I think quoting from Henry Mintzberg's is quite an important thing to do. Um, I do not like the word guru, which gets bandied around so casually these days. It has an air of superficiality about it. People who provide simple answers to simple questions, five easy steps to every company's problem. I think we're quite familiar with that world. And Richard Norman is not such a guru. He is better than that. I think a lot of his work uh, is his testimony to that, to that uh, particular sentiment. The last thing I want to say about uh, these lecture series, this lecture series, is that uh, we've agreed a contract, we've agreed with the uh, European Management Journal to publish the first three of these lectures. So you'll be able to read about it again in, in, in a few years' time. So we're quite, we're quite pleased with that, with that outcome. So that's uh, about Richard and the prize. And the, and the lecture. Uh, I'd also like to spend some time introducing our, our speaker this evening, Barbara Trinaska, who's not a Swedish Finn or a Finnish Swede, but is, uh, 
a Polish Swede uh, who uh, grew up in Poland before the war, before the wall came down. Not before the wall. Come on, before the wall came down. Um, so she's she's lived uh, she's lived uh, through quite important transformations across Europe, and um, she's uh, received a number of honorary doctorates from universities such as uh, Stockholm School of Economics, uh, Helsinki School of Economics, and Copenhagen Business School. She's a member of the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences, quite an honour. The Royal Swedish Royal Engineering uh, Academy as well, so coming science and engineering, and the Royal Society of Arts and Sciences. So I think she's got all the bases covered in terms of societies in uh, in Sweden, um, and she's received a number of prizes for her work as well uh, on organisation theory. Um, her work. Uh, is quite well known in terms of its uh, its anchoring in constructivist perspectives, but her work has uh, been very important in, 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 in later years in terms of its uh, appreciation of the narrative turn and storytelling of organisation theory, and she's contributed significant pieces of, of scholarly work in, in, in that area on story representation and the role of myth and so on within organisation settings. Um, She's an inter interdisciplinary scholar, so she draws upon organization theory, management theory, and also anthropology, and has also written widely around uh, research methods, social science research methods in modern organizations, drawing upon many of those, those, uh, those areas. Um, this evening, uh, she's going to be taking uh, a rather interesting line of attack in defense of management. Um, I was thinking about uh, this before as I was cycling up the road to here uh, in relation to the health service. For those of you who live in Britain, I think the narrative we hear here is there's either too much management or when there's going to be cuts and restructuring, there's too little management. So we quite, quite understand how much management we should have, what management looks like, and we're continually uh, debating these issues. So this evening, I think we're going to hear uh, some more about culture interpretation of management, how management is understood in our society, and how we can perhaps resurrect and uh, reconnect with some of the fundamental meanings of management. So I'd like to hand over to Barbara, and uh, I think we have about 40, 45 minutes, and then after that we can have some questions. So welcome, and thank you. Thank you very much, Mark, and thank you for inviting me here. I must say that this is a, quite an honor. I'm touched and I feel very proud to be here, to be speaking, and to be the second speaker in the normal lectures. But I have to admit that I find it difficult to believe that Richard is not with us anymore. And I think that maybe in the, you know, I feel sometimes that he's still in his castle in France, um, driving those speedy cars, but maybe he is. If if it's true, if, as some people are telling us that there are actually much more than three dimensions to our world, and there may be alternative universes, some other places. So maybe in one of them he is still doing all those things. Let's hope. However, I'm going back to our three-dimensional worlds 
or maybe even two-dimensional, as some of my colleagues are saying, the world is flat. Is flat. There's so much things happening on the surface that we can be very busy with all of this without bothering about more dimensions. So in this world, in this surface, I think that uh, time has come to defend management. And you may be asking yourself, from what? And in my opinion, management needs to be defended in the first place from its friends. Uh, there is a saying in Polish at least, but I believe even in English, that with such friends you don't need enemies. And indeed, uh, one can say that, for example, I don't mean critical, that the management should be defended from critical management scholars. To the contrary, I think that they are not enemies at all, and I think that oh, every art needs some critique to develop. But uh, I do feel sometimes that management needs to be defended from those who are very enthusiastic about it and who propagate it. As Mark said, that there can be too much of a good thing, there can be too much of management. I will give you one example. I have nothing personal uh, against the author of this text. I got it quite randomly from the web. And it goes like that. It's called Management 101, so you, you understand these are basics. Management is both art and science. How true. It is the art of making people more effective than they would have been without you. The science is in how you do that. There are four basic pillars. Plan, organize, direct, and monitor. Management starts with planning. Good management starts with good planning. And proper prior planning prevents, well, you know, the rest of that one. Without a plan, you will never succeed. Now that you have a plan, you have to make it happen. Is everything ready ahead of your group so the right stuff will get to your group at the right time? Is your group prepared to do its part of the plan? Is the downstream organization ready for what your group will deliver and when it will arrive? Now, flip the on switch. Tell people what they need to do. I like to think of this part like conducting an orchestra. Now that you have everything moving, you have to keep an, an eye on things. Make sure everything is going according to the plan. When it isn't going according to plan, you need to step in and adjust the plan, just as the orchestra conductor will adjust the tempo. Well, observe that it's not easy to tell the difference between mouthing platitudes and giving generalized advice. <laughs> One of the reasons is that platitude speakers borrow freely from theoreticians. As you can see, those four elements are the sort of slightly redone files for principles of four managerial activities. And the analogy to a conductor has also been used in theorizing by the sweet Sune Carson. Although in this particular case, the author doesn't seem to know much about a conductor's job. Actually, he should have read Weick's The Social Psychology of Organizing, you know, this old classic, but it's amazing pieces about what conductors do and not do. So, you see, I think that management should be sort of defended against this kind of propagators, but I have to admit 
that the very idea of this talk came also from the web, where I found a following defense of management. Now, Lazarus B. Danzig, I assume, is a pseudonym of a guy who is a manager at McMurdo Station in Antarctica. You will see it's America, that's why defense is spelled with an S. And this is how it goes. Burdened as the middle manager is with a pedigree of doubt, and trapped in a cubicle prison cell, suffering endlessly in light company, it behooves us to understand that these errant figures, tormented by perceptions of privation and suffering the frozen association of life in Antarctica, should finally be granted their writers do. The middle manager is as old as man, and the species as it exists in Antarctica has evolved outside the constraints of accountability and exists in a state of erotic isolation. The brain-fevered ideology of the remote outpost manager as a beacon of enlightened civilization died in the Congo a hundred years ago. The larger legacy of middle management lies in its dictums on the nature of bureaucratic responsibility. This school places every impetus on abject security and recoils from the risks involved in direct decision-making or in the sponsoring of insightful changes. Longevity is its mantra, first and last and always. These bureaucratic toys speaking about managers, are in fact the very axis of our civilization. Without them, we are condemned as a species to disintegration and as unsustainable drive. Managerial mediocrity is the very mortar of our civilization. And no institution in heaven or on earth would fail to crumble in the absence of its mollifying umbrage. <laughs> And then he gives a piece of sort of personal experience. Therein lies the conundrum of my own experience as a manager. Only through manual labor have I been able to give any semblance of strength and steel to the indolence and languor that is my true nature. In my role as a puppet master, lounging in this blasé bureaucratic atmosphere, virtually devoid of repercussions, any lack of diligence on my part shall only encourage, if not excite, my own profound negligence of everything. So, as you can see, with such friends and such defenses, it is perhaps uh, advisable to move to the enemy camp. So here is one, or at least one critic. Here is my colleague, Martin Parker, who has written 2002 the book against management. And this is what he says. Management is both a civilizing process and a new civic religion. There are some rather interesting general assumptions lying be behind this faith. The first is a need of control over nature. The second is the need of control over human beings. And the third is an increasing control of our organizational abilities. And then, management as person, practice, and discipline is almost everywhere nowadays. It has become one of the defining words of our time, 
and both the cause and the symptom of our brave new world. Almost all these senses of management, the three elements, are both limiting and dangerous, and managerialism is ultimately a form of thought and activity which is being used to justify considerably cruelty and inequality. And this very peculiar and particular notion of management that has been constructed over the past century is deeply implicated in a wide variety of political and ethical problems and that and this limits our capacity to imagine alternative forms of organizing. So I couldn't agree more. But the question is, I mean, Martin is here is sort of diagnosing the situation, but the sort of almost automatic question is, how, how and why has it become so? And here is one of the answers. It's a very Henry Mintzberg mentioned before, and uh, he is quite angry with the management as it is now, and uh, in his opinion, the sort of the culprit is the management education, especially MBAs. This is his book called Managers Not MBAs from 2004, and this is what he says very sarcastically. Managers are important people who sit above others, disconnected from the work of making products and selling service. At the top sits the chief executive who is the corporation. If you read anything about, uh, of Henry Mintzberg, he is especially angry with, with the CEOs of the corporation because he thinks that it's kind of a narrative that puts all uh, uh, causality and sort of a, a merits for what a big corporation does and one person is simply ridiculous, not to mention the money. Which is not ridiculous, but it's, it's <laughs> dramatic. Yeah. Managing is decision based on systematic analysis. To manage, therefore, is significantly, significantly to deem it is more science than art with no, no mention of craft. It's again, as uh, Mr. Rowe was saying, this is science and art, but possibly, but certainly not craft. The data for such decision-making comes from brief, convenient packages of words and numbers called cases in school and reports in practice. Under this, managers see their organizations neatly separated like MBA programs into the functions of finance marketing, accounting, and so forth, each of which applies its own repertoire of techniques. To bring these functions together, managers pronounce strategies, which are very special and, however mysterious, can be understood by people who have been taught industry analysis and given the opportunity to formulate many of them in case study classrooms. As you can see, his bitterness is sort of overflowing. The best strategies are clean, simple, deliberate, and bold, like those of the heroic leaders in the cases. After this, MBA managers have finished. After this, MBA managers have finished formulating their strategies. All the other people, known recently as human resources, must scurry around implementing them. 
This implementation is, however, no easy matter. Because while the managers who have been to business school embrace change, many of those human resources uh, who haven't resist it. And to become such a manager, better still a leader, who gets to sit on the top of everyone else, you must first sit for two years in a business school. That enables you to manage anything. Well, uh, there is another view which is less sarcastic but more general, but I think sort of uh, goes the same way. Uh, this is Nigel Thrift who sort of uh, adopted a Lumanian perspective according to which communication systems are autopoietic, they are just reproducing themselves, they cannot do anything else but reproduce themselves and if they change, they change because the reproduction is faulty or because there is some kind of external catastrophe so what he says is that the, such an autopoietic system has been uh, built, constructed and it consists of exactly business schools and MBAs programs and connected to management consulting, connected to management gurus and to management in the media, which is, which is a culture industry nowadays. And those sort of uh, influence, strengthen and repeat one another. I mean, you can see it very easily uh, in the in the uh, recent ranking of, of universities, uh, you know, how the media collaborate with this kind of managerial uh, practices. And because it is a communication system, like in all communication systems, the language is very important, crucial. And my colleagues, the two Swedes, Björn Ropa and Patrick Zapata, edited a book which is called The Rise of Management Speak. It's now being translated from, from Swedish to English, but these are my translations, however faulty they are, and this is what they say, that management speak is the language managers speak among themselves. But what is more interesting is that not only managers use management speak, but more and more people use it in more and more contexts and often with great success. And the one who speaks it best wins the argument. Actually, we have quite a few very interesting studies showing how exactly sort of a clever use of management speak wins over any kind of substantial argument. Management speak is spreading and is being used by politicians, bureaucrats, managers, soccer coaches, bishops, and others. Bishops, no joke, truly. But here's the joke, because they took an example from Sweden's satirical weekly, which is truly very funny. And this is an example of, I mean, they are quoting this kind of a management uh, manifesto. Soon there will be growth and full speed ahead. Our most important objective is to lower unemployment to 4%. We shall accomplish it by increasing growth. We shall achieve growth by decreasing open unemployment. We will create, as it were, an equal, equilateral circle <laughs> where one thing leads to another. <laughs> Did I hear you laughing? Okay. <laughs> so look at that. 
That's a quote from Anton de Grafton, New York Review of Books. He's, he starts, from the accession of Margaret Thatcher onward, the pressure has risen. Universities have to prove that they matter. Administrators and chairs have pushed faculty to win grants and publish and rewarded those who do so most successfully with periods of leave and other privileges that American professors can only dream of. The pace of production is high, but the social compact among teachers is frayed. In the last couple of years, the squeeze has become tighter than ever. Budgets have shrunk <coughs> and universities have tightened their belts to fit. Administrators have responded not by resisting, but by trying to show that they can do more with less. To explain how they can square this circle, they issue statements in the Orwellian language of strategic planning. A typical planning document from King's College London, I hope nobody is present here, don't want to offend anybody, explains that the institution must create financially viable academic activity by disinvesting from the areas that are at the subcritical level with no realistic prospect of extra investment. Yeah. So, uh, where to go for help? Where to go for the defense of management? So, what I thought, one possible way, is go back to the classics, to the old and new classics. Also because back to basics is also one of those managerial platitudes, and as we all know, nobody can... Uh, protest against platitudes because platitudes say what, what is absolutely true. So why not use it for subversive purposes as well? So back to basics. My first classic is a woman, a theoretician of management, or she calls it actually leadership, but Minsberg and I do not like this word. So, so that. She has been forgotten for a long time, but she's now remembered again. Probably because nothing much changed since the times she was suggesting how the management should look like. And this is a quote from her. I consider the fundamental principles of organization evoking, which means to draw out from each his fullest possibilities. She did use the chauvinist language, but so everybody did at that time. So, interacting, the man who is the expression of a harmonious and effective unity which he has helped to form is a good manager. And integrating, uh, a good manager should integrate the experience of all and use it for a common purpose, which is the opposite of the good old dividend impera the idea that if you get everybody quarreling with everybody else, you will be the winner. She actually had another function which she called emerging, but I think because the book was called leader, The Leader and the Expert, and it's sort of, this emerging thing is very interesting because it's very close to what people like William Gibson called pattern recognition, sort of a feeling for what is happening in time. But I don't think it's not necessary for a good manager, but uh, she has other purposes. At any rate, I mean, she was presenting it as, as something that was happening. The change was taking place in the 40s. But I do think it was 
rather wishful thinking. I don't think that her dreams did come true. I do think that the saga manager is a sort of heroic leader, continues, in spite of the fact that the, that the late modernity in which we live is actually characterized by control at a distance, not by supervision. It was quite funny, one of my doctoral students was studying Volvo at the time when Perry Ellenhammer was still its CEO, and she has learned from the people there that in order to know what he's planning, his people in, I mean, in the factories needed to, to read the newspaper because to read what he said in an interview because he was never there. He was representing very successfully. He was doing, you know, deals. He was not meddling with what they were doing in the, in the factory. And as I mentioned before, one of the most locations opponent of this heroic saga is exactly Henry Mindberg, who develops Marie Follett's principles. And recently I've seen him quoting her in relation to the political conflict, how to, how to solve actually the Gaza uh, conflict. So here is his prescription for a good manager. It's a text called Managing Quietly, and it is indeed about managing quietly. And for him, this quiet management means very much like, in case of Follett, inspiring, caring, infusing, and initiating. And I really admire him for the fact that he could have a beautiful um, alliteration, but he put caring, even if it starts with C, because he felt it was very important. I know many people who want just not to do a rhetorical effect. And this is what he says. Quiet management is about thoughtfulness rooted in experience. Words like wisdom, trust, dedication, and judgment apply. Indeed, the best managing of all may well be silent. That way people can say, we did it ourselves. Because we did. His favorite example is actually Switzerland, because he said that nobody in Switzerland, ah, we're speaking about the citizenship test, I mean, like, in Switzerland, nobody would answer a question, who is the um, prime minister, or who is the leading government, because they are rotating, so and nobody cares, it means because it's better for Switzerland that it's exactly like that. Well, the, I think that this quiet management sometimes in practice is called feminine leadership. Though um, Mintzberg really detests the, the word leader, and I sort of understand him fully. It's a, I think it's a problem in Swedish because in Swedish management and leadership are very similar words. It's Leibning and Lederskop. So they are very easily sort of uh, suited as synonyms. But at least in, in English you can avoid it, right? They are very different words, as far as I can see. So, yet another classic. And, okay, we were speaking about gurus, and of course he is supposed to be, he was supposed to be a sort of super guru. But you know, okay, Tony Jan said something like that. We live in a world shaped by a generation of Austrian thinkers. 
the business theorist Peter Drucker, the economist Friedrich A. von Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and Joseph Schumpeter, and the philosopher Karl Popper, who witnessed liberalism's collapse in the face of fascism and concluded that the best way to defend liberalism was to keep government out of economic life. Well, maybe so, but first of all, those Austrians were rather well-educated, I would say. And second of all, Drucker, and I think in, in, in contrast to the others, I don't know what Popper's ideas about the uh, uh, economy were, but Drucker uh, was actually very much against, I mean, he was a Keynesian and generally very suspicious about macroeconomics. Also, he he was amazing with this in this sort of feeling that what is coming the time. He foresaw great many developments, and he coined great many expressions that became sort of uh, common use. For example, postmodernism, or at least so Stephen Tulman says, and I, I believe what he says. He used it first in '54. Uh, Postcapitalist society is written in a book which is called like that. Knowledge workers and so on and so forth. Besides, for me, actually, this was the first book I've ever read in the 70s in Poland, The Effective Executive, and it made a lot of uh, pragmatic sense to me. Also, perhaps because he's Austrian, it's sort of uh, based on the Catholic idea that they, you should be uh, relying on, on strength of your of your bosses, of your subordinates, of your colleagues, rather than looking for their weaknesses. Whereas I think that nowadays uh, this this kind of a you know a strengths and weaknesses analysis is a very Protestant thing. Sort of a okay, you understand I'm coming from a, I'm not a Catholic, but I'm coming from a Catholic country. So it, I may be positively prejudiced, but I think Drucker did a lot of very interesting things about management said and, and wrote very interesting thing. Especially as he was changing the idea of what management and proper management was and he was noting it himself. I mean his opinion he was reading the times as they changed. So in the nineteen forty six in his concept of the corporation that nobody remembers now, he said that as a manager is someone who is responsible for the work of subordinates. And the management was all about rank and power. Whoever has a higher rank has more power, and the subordinates are supposed to listen to what managers say. <coughs> but by 1954, the practice of management, he says already that the manager is responsible for the application and performance of people. So it moves from sort of giving orders to, to looking at the sort of uh, activities and actions that are being performed. <coughs> and finally, in 1993, in post-capitalist society, he says that manager is responsible for the application and performance of knowledge. So, not the mention of human resources. I mean, he is fascinated with the sort of knowledge production, knowledge workers, and how this can be sort of properly used in organizing. And last but not least, Richard Norman. Well, I do know that he probably changed a lot. I cannot say that I read all the three editions, 
But it would be amazing if he wrote some of those things already in 1984, because speaking exactly about, about uh, feeling what was in the air, feeling the, the, what was in the times coming, what he was busy doing in service management is establishing uh, differences, as it were, a distinction between management of uh, production companies and of service companies. But what he actually uh, identified, I think, were the traits, the emerging traits that started to be typical for the object of management in no matter where, no matter whether it's production or services. First of all, the intangibility of products and services. I mean, we have now events and experiences as products. And the border between products and services is very blurred. I mean, very, very fuzzy. I mean, sort of a, every producer comes with services and Every, every service provider has various gadgets and things to products to do with it. And you know, uh, in finance they are speaking about products that they have. In insurance they have products. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to say what is what. And there's no need perhaps to say what is what. But also what he was saying that management, sort of in Dracarian way, that management does not concern neither does not concern either people or things, but actually acts and interactions. So from the sort of uh, old-fashioned and still very much alive idea that every organizing is, is happening by a network of actors, people connecting to each other and saying, no, they are connections between actions. I mean, what is being done, what is being said, how it's being interacted, this is what is important and not where the person A is in contact with the person B. It's important what they're doing together or with one another. <coughs> and then probably it's an effect of the fact that there is no difference between product and service anymore. There is no uh, uh, limiting line between production and consumption. They merge. I mean, there we have something as called participative design with the IT people are doing. They ask the users to cooperate, participate in the design, and they're even sort of using the, the inventions by the users and incorporating them in their design, or so they say at least. Uh, there's something that I studied recently, the production of news, and there is no difference really between the production and consumption because it's the same people who are producing news that are consuming it. It's quite amazing sort of circle that goes. I mean, like I studied news agencies, they are supposed to be offering products or services, as you call it, to the newspapers, but they get the products or services from the newspapers, so the thing goes like that without you know, much difference. Further, the delivery becomes increasingly virtual in both senses of the word. I mean, sort of what was called before uh, sort of a post order now has become an internet order and it's, it's uh, growing. And uh, some of things are delivered virtually, 
I'm very fond of the new electronic books because I don't have any room on my shelf, so now I only buy books that I can get on my iPad, and I'm very pleased with that because I thought I would have to stop reading. <laughs> and then he was speaking, probably that was only in the 2002 edition, no, it was later, too, about the image as, a, as management tool and about internal and external marketing, about constructing an image of the company and motivating this way your own employee, em, employees, but also showing it outside. And of course, by now we call it branding, but I still do prefer image because I think it's a, this is a, I was going to say, much more adequate image for that, but it's a good thing. But you see what I mean. I'm sort of this branding with the with the uh, uh, association to the cattle branding where it comes from. But you know, companies like it, so we have it. But I do think that and the importance of an image and this internal and external marketing uh, will not vanish. This is something we've got, and the, the especially the public sector had to 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 learn it hard way and I thought I think it's going to to stay with us. So uh, what I would suggest after having um, fortified myself with those classics. Well my Encarta World English Dictionary, which I have in my computer, defines the gives five meanings of the verb manage. Uh, to succeed in doing something, especially something that seems <coughs> difficult or impossible, to survive or continue despite difficulties, especially a lack of resources, to be in charge of something such as a store, department, or project, and be responsible for its smooth running and for any personnel employed. And then it also means to handle and keep control of something such as a weapon or tool, and to keep control of a person or animal, or a number of people of animals, especially when they are wild or unruly. But in my reading, the numbers four and five were sort of dominating the uh, uh, practice of management uh, recently, or maybe not only recently, but for a long time. And I would like it to, to switch, as it were, to the first three, which I think fits much better. So I am um, at the point to suggest that management could be actually a service, especially in professional organizations. See, but this already Marie Follett with the leader and the expert, that's the idea. That's what's, what kind of sort of management or you know, leadership you need in organizations where most people are experts, no matter in what? I mean, from cleaning to teaching. I mean, sort of a, practically all organizations are nowadays populated by professionals, as both Drake and Norman pointed out. So, uh, in that sense, you know, the managers could be people who are making uh, prof prof the work of professionals easier, smoother. Uh, running without problems. And in that sense, what I mean, the managers could be people who organize work 
for others, but not of others. I'm sure you know what's, what I mean when they come people who tell you how to do your work uh, better, of course, than you do. And this is, of course, the last thing you're going to, to be doing, but that's because you belong to those human resources that, as you remember from Mitzberg, do, didn't go MBA courses and therefore are resistant to, to, to change. Well, imagine that somebody, you know, you have a problem, you have things to do, somebody organizes work for you. Actually, speaking, coming back to feminine leadership, the secretaries used to do that, but of course secretaries were treated as below professionals after managers came professionals, after that came secretaries, but maybe the secretaries were and are actually, I mean, I'm saying were because in Sweden we don't have secretaries anymore, so it's another matter, uh, but maybe they are managers in the first three meanings of the of the world. And you know, this is not so strange as it may sound, because uh, studies, various our students who did ethnographic studies in law offices, finance, IT companies, uh, this is how it works, that seems to work. The managers are people who are supposed to allow other people doing their jobs. And Actually, managers I hear in finance companies are, are paid less than the traders because you know they are not doing this; they are organizing work. So, um, I get to the point of sort of uh, daydreaming, and I was thinking about university. Imagine management as service in a professional organization such as universities, where having a managerial position, if you are a professional, I mean, university uh, teacher, lecturer, would be sort of a sacrifice you make for your colleagues rather than the, the way of seeking glory and power. And then the main task would be to, to see to the infrastructure of professional work, facilitating it rather than complicating it. And finally, last but not least, this is very important, as, as Richard Norman pointed out, the task of representing the unit outside created an attractive image. Actually, creating an attractive image is, is one way of sort of representing unit outside, but uh, now I remember that um, at a certain point, Philip Diribon uh, made a comparison between the, how the role of a manager is understood in France and in the States. And he said that managers in France think that their main task is to defend their people from the upper you know, leadership, whereas managers in the States think that their main task is to transfer the wishes of the leadership down. So, you know, considering that the actual effects of professional work are evaluated in another context, uh, not that, not, in, not necessarily internally and not by necessarily by managers, one could imagine the sort of a separation of the two where the managers do not meddle in the work of professionals but help them to do what is their job. And on this openly optimistic note, I think I will finish my presentation. Thank you very much.